Welcome to the ACO Show. For this episode, Joe and Josh go international for a transcontinental interview with Professor George Crooks, who is the CEO of the Digital Health and Care Institute, or DHI, which is Scotland's National Innovation Center for Digital Health and Care. DHI is funded by the Scottish government with the goal of combining industry and academic expertise with business and technical innovation to create digital health and care innovations with a focus that includes prevention and early detection of illnesses as well as post-event care. You may notice some similarities to the work of Medicare's Innovation Center. We got to hear about some key differences between the health systems in the UK and the US, as well as common transatlantic challenges with healthcare data. Welcome to the ACO Show. I'm Josh Israel, a psychiatrist and a medical director at Allidade. And I'm Joe Schunkweiler. I'm also a physician, and I lead adoption and training here at Allidade. And we're very pleased to have with us today, Dr. George Crooks. Dr. Crooks is not only a primary care physician or a general practitioner, as they would say, uh, in his native Scotland, but also the CEO of the Digital Health and Care Institute, uh, also based in Scotland. Dr. Crooks, thanks for joining us today. You're more than welcome. Uh, first off, uh, you are uh, our first international guest on the show, uh, and we would love to hear a bit about what the Digital Health and Care Institute is and and your own story. How did you go from being a general practitioner to leading this kind of enterprise? Oh, thanks very much. Um, my story is really quite simple, and I think uh, any doctor listening to this podcast will kind of recognize it. Um, I ended up here completely by accident. I was a family doctor uh, in the northeast of Scotland, in Aberdeen, which is the oil capital uh, of the United Kingdom. Um, and I was really enjoying general practice. And one day I was asked um, if I would uh, get involved in putting together a bid by our local healthcare provider um, for what was called trust status. And that was... Um, a healthcare system uh, in the northeast of Scotland becoming more autonomous and independent of government or independent of the NHS. Um, I agreed to do that because it sounded interesting and that embarked me down a career of um, medical management and medical leadership. I became a medical director um, and then for, fell into um, video consultations by accident because in the northeast of Scotland there's a significant remote and rural population with and patients having to travel three, four hours uh, to their nearest hospital. And we started to explore the use of video. From there, it was a small step into uh, getting into um, computing technology and how we could use virtual consultations, not just by video conferencing, but by telephone, by email. And then I established the Scottish Centre for Telehealth. Um, uh, that then moved into assisted living, or as we call it in the UK, telecare, uh, and then into innovation. So it was a kind of a journey of discovery for me, uh, which was never a part of my career plan at the start. And I think a lot of uh, senior clinicians will probably recognize that story. It's by luck uh, rather than uh, intense planning that's uh, made me end up where I am today. I can say you're probably, uh, without speaking for Josh, speaking to two of those types of physicians right now. I don't know if I'd call myself a senior physician, but I would say that um, definitely the twists and turns that lead you from seeing patients every day to doing you know, technology-based work are, are, are always interesting for us to hear. 
Yeah, and um, it's not easy. Um, if you were t- talking about doing something that is simple in the practice of medicine, getting involved in uh, digital tools and services is not an easy uh, thing to do. And that's why um, in Scotland, um, I was able to, uh, with others, uh, persuade Scottish government that they needed to put a particular focus um, around this area um, of clinical practice. Um, as you will relate to in the States, it's increasingly obvious to, to people around the world that the way we're delivering health and care services um, is not sustainable into the medium, let alone the long term, um, because we're facing ever-increasing demands and capacity challenges within our system, and the cost of providing health care rises exponentially year on year. Um, we're coping with the rise of long-term conditions, Uh, aging society, um, and so on and so forth. And that's not just within the developed world, but in the developing economies around the world, their problems are very similar. And we know from work that we've done looking at uh, the global healthcare workforce that by the end of the 2020s and into the 2030s, there's going to be a global shortage of people um, able to work um, in health and care. So we have to do things differently, and that's about empowering our citizens to make better informed lifestyle choices, to deliver more of their own health care rather than being dependent on others to do so. And we believe that digital technologies can be and should be the great enabler to make that happen. And does that take us to the mission then of the Digital Health and Care Institute that you now lead? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our government have have recognized that they need to invest um, because transformational change within healthcare is a very difficult thing to achieve. You know, our healthcare system has got inbuilt inertia. It doesn't like changing and it doesn't like changing for a whole host of reasons. Um, You can be cynical and on some days I am and it's all about vested interests. Um, of professional groupings, and they may be doctors, they could actually be nurses, or they could actually be service managers and administrators um, who review who view transformational change as a threat, uh, a threat to themselves, um, a threat to their profession, and so on and so forth. And it couldn't be further from the case. But you need advocates to take things forward. And also, you need people dedicated to support the transformational change process. Because for too too long, we've expected people um, to do their day job, deliver services to patients, while at the same time um, championing transformational change, service redesign, um, and deployment. And that's too big an ask uh, in today's world. Delivering healthcare is complex. It's becoming ever more complex. So we need... Um, uh, experts to support others to take that forward. And that's what the Digital Health and Care Institute does in Scotland. We bring together um, health and care professionals, uh, policy makers, um, academics, uh, industry, and service users and their families all together into a safe space where we can innovate, develop new service, new service models and products, and deploy them not just into pilots, we've stopped doing pilots. We now do phased implementations. 
because the whole thing is about adoption and scaling. And no one around the world has got that cracked yet, not even us. <laughs> now, you mentioned steadily increasing healthcare costs. And we assume over here that our steadily increasing healthcare costs are due to misaligned incentives where providers are paid for service rather than outcome. We attribute some of it to entrenched lobbying that has a say over how particular codes are reimbursed. Uh, but you don't have those particular factors over there in Scotland. What do you attribute your steadily rising costs to? Well, we've had a number of those things. I don't think they're probably as uh, magnified as they are in some of your health and care ecosystems across uh, the United States. Um, but you can take the, the fact that um, the science of medicine uh, continues to advance. Um, the new um, medications um, are ever more expensive. Um, we can keep people alive who in the past would have succumbed to their underlying disease process uh, much earlier. Um, and all of these things cost. And we continue to see increasing uh, demands um, on our service. Um, so we have got a number of the same disincentives as you have, but we've also got that reality where there is a complete mismatch between demand and capacity. Um, and things continue uh, simply to drive up costs. The other thing we are not particularly good at um, is workforce planning. We either t have too many of one types of specialist medical uh, uh, professional and not enough of another. So we turn the tap off and we turn another tap on, but it's a bit like turning an oil tanker. And all of this builds in cost. And of course, the biggest cost of all across all of our systems is failure demand. And we generate failure demand on a regular and daily basis. Uh, as you're talking about this, I'm sort of struck by the overlap with uh, the innovation centers that have existed within Medicare. CMMI is the acronym, the Center for Medicare Innovation. We have some alums of that uh, organization here at Allidade, and it was instrumental in forming the value-based care environment in which we now operate here in the States. But you, you touched on, a, a, and I love this phrase, data trust. Um, and the role that plays. And you could broaden that, I think, to technology trust. And we've yeah. seen, you know, within you know, my career and Josh's career in medicine, huge shifts in the way physicians in the United States interact with technology and interact with data. How have you seen that shift? You talked about tele uh, telehealth um, in your own career, but technology and data as two parts of that. Um, how have you seen that shift? Yeah, the thing that I've realized very late in my career is that it is actually all about data. As we're on this conference call today, the vast majority of life and death decisions being made for patients, be they in the US or be they in the UK or anywhere around the world, is based on data that the healthcare professionals trust. And the only data they trust at this moment in time is data that they generate themselves. So that's the blood tests, that's the radiology, the CT, the MRI, the ECG, et cetera, et cetera. 
But we know that that is at best only a 180 degree view of a patient's lived experience. So what we are saying is that we now need to bring together consumer generated data with formal health and care data and blend those things together so that we can make reliable and safe decisions uh, on the management of our patients. And to do that, we need to trust the data. We're also, I think, still tied up on trying to allow data to flow within healthcare organizations or between healthcare organizations where two different organizations are sharing the care of a patient. And that's probably more of an issue in, in the UK and in European healthcare than it may be in the, in, in the US. Um, and we have looked at best practice around the world. We've developed an ICT architecture, which we believe will be fit for the future. And what we're saying, and this is maybe a bit heretical to some who are listening to this, is that in the future, the citizen needs to be the point of data integration, not within a formal health and care organization. And we need to have a fully consent-driven data sharing model that allows the, the citizen to consent to the data to be shared either with their primary, their, their, uh, primary care physician, their family doctor, um, their specialist doctor, their mother, father, sister, brother, next door neighbor, whoever it may be, uh, in a fully consent-driven environment, and that the data um, needs to be trusted. Does that I make sense to you? It absolutely does. And, you know, there are definitely parts of that that I would integrate into our own pitch here at Allidate, particularly around um, sharing data, the flow of data. And I love your phrasing on the 180 degree versus 360 degree view of the patient. You know, we we work in the population health management space, and you could say that we're providing that for physicians through our software and our data flows and our services but for their whole patient panel in a way that they haven't previously and, and, and working with them to think about all the patients they see and the totality of that patient's experience within the healthcare system. So um, I, I love your phrasing there. You may be aware that the data flow in this country is very challenged, that one doctor's office almost never is able to speak to a different doctor's office electronically, a hospital, Electronic medical records don't communicate with outpatient providers, sometimes by technological problems, sometimes by choice of the hospital, treating it as sort of company secrets. Um, what are the issues that you face over there in terms of data flow? I would have guessed that it was an easy matter given that you have one large system. Uh, yes and no. Um, we have got a large system which is called the NHS, but it's actually fragmented. Um, it's not quite as overtly fragmented as yours, but it is fragmented. So within Scotland, for example, um, uh, our electronic health records across all our hospitals are provided by one large U.S. company. However, we have got five, at least five different versions of that electronic health record, um, and neither of the versions speak to each other. So you could say we've got the best and worst, worst of all worlds. I guess the issue in, in the U.S. is, uh, is that a patient, uh, in fact, um, is the income-generating tool um, of your system, and so therefore keeping data locked within a, a, 
a hospital group um, or or a, a group of physicians um, is how you keep uh, and safeguard safeguard your income. But if you go back to 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 um, my view of the future, is that model of healthcare is going to become increasingly unsustainable as we move past, we move forward. Um, and that is the case in, in the UK, where people move from one system to the other. Um, and therefore, we have to allow data to flow uh, with the patient. Uh, hence the reason we are basically saying that each citizen should have a personal held file um, where they uh, hold all their data. And we believe there's going to be new business opportunities that will flow out of that. Um, because where do you want your data stored? Well, some people will be happy to give it away to um, the large global technology uh, companies, be they the, uh, the, the Googles, the Amazons, etc. of this world. Um, others will be happy for uh, governments to hold the data, and that's certainly the case in a country in Europe like Estonia. But the vast majority of people will be suspicious of both of those those options, large tech or state. So we're seeing a growth um, of uh, data uh, holding companies which are asset locked. In other words, they will store your data, but through their terms of association, they can do nothing with that data. Um, they can't profit by it. It is kept securely. Uh, and uh, no one can access it other than the citizen. It's completely encrypted. And if we talk about citizens holding their own data, um, only a small number of people are going to use their own data uh, to manage their own care. Uh, so you're then going to look at another group of companies that will form that will support people to make better informed choices using their own data. Um, and so we're going to see these um, uh, orchestration or managed services uh, appearing where people will be supported uh, through the use of their own data to uh, make better informed lifestyle choices, negotiate health and care uh, management, and so on and so forth. When you look at our healthcare system, I wonder if there are parts of it that just look from the outside, absolutely insane. And, and also by the same token, are there parts of it that, that are impressive and that you wish your system would emulate? Yeah, I think, I think it's very interesting that, that there, are, there are an awful lot of good things going on across, across the United States. But the thing that I, I, I find really quite interesting is that you still have alive and well and embedded across your system um, a very paternalistic medical model of care. Um, and those days have disappeared in the United Kingdom. Uh, we are now basically looking at completely citizen or person-centered care um, where everything is based round about the citizen. And the best example I can give in the technology field is up until five, seven years ago um, in, in the US and actually the same in the UK, that the vast majority of technology investment of which there's billions of dollars spent was, has been spent to benefit either the organizations delivering healthcare or 
the employees who work within those organizations. And the patient was the passive recipient of the largesse that came out of that investment. It's only in a handful of really insightful um, healthcare organizations that significant investment is now going into technology that is primarily directed at the citizen to empower and enable them to actively participate and deliver care themselves. And that is the way we need to go. And if we put more effort into that, as opposed to continuing to ring fence our system to protect it um, from uh, outside influence um, or outside agencies, the better life will be for everyone. Because that type of behavior, which is writ large within your system, generates significant amounts of waste and inefficiencies, which I think you know and recognize better than I do. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, a, a, an interesting observation. And I think we're, we're starting to shift that way, but we haven't seen the killer app, so to speak, on the consumer-focused health side. Um, and I wonder, as you're speaking, whether that killer app is going to show up um, outside the U.S., you know, sort of like Spotify, you know, <laughs> something that, that comes over and takes over the, the consumer music side and is, is founded, uh, um, you know, wet, far from Silicon Valley. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I think you're I think you're right. I mean, the stalking horse is on your doorstep. It's it's on the sidewalks of your cities. It's the fact that since the turn of the last century, in fact, for the last let me even be more provocative for the last three to four hundred years, the medical profession has created dependency on citizens. We have made people increasingly dependent. Um, on doctors. Now, the way that you and I and everyone out there today is running their lives has transformed over the last 10 years because of technology. In fact, now when I, when I talk, talk um, uh, to audiences of 100, 200, 300 people, um, I have probably got one person in the audience uh, who doesn't have a mobile phone. And in fact, probably only 10 in the audience don't have a smartphone. These things are ubiquitous, not just in the US, the UK and Europe, but also ubiquitous in the emerging economies like India uh, and so on and so forth. Um, so the way we run our day-to-day -day lives has transformed. Citizens are not going to tolerate a healthcare system that stays locked in to the world of 20, 25, 40, or 100 years ago. They are going to vote with their feet. They're going to demand change. We need to make sure that we do that change in partnership and collaboratively and have some control over it, as opposed to be dragged screaming by the hair to react to a world not of our making. Because... Clinical input, don't get me wrong, is going to be important here because patient safety is fundamental to all we do. And we can't allow ourselves to be blown um, by the winds of change and by the cavalier attitudes of some or others. So we need to do it together. But to do that, we may need to wake up and smell the coffee 
and start moving and start moving now. So with that, uh, looking forward, what is the digital innovation that you're most excited about currently? For me, the greatest thing um, for us is the, and this is going to sound really boring, um, believe it or not, is it is the enabling architectures that are beginning um, to develop. We are now moving away from, from the global tech giants who basically said, we will do everything for you. You know, from a consumer-facing app through to the advanced analytics, uh, through to the um, the data centers, right. et cetera, et cetera. We're moving to small fleet of food companies who are playing to their strengths and coming together to work in collaboration. And the biggest thing for me is the recognition that we need an ICT architecture. In other words, the technology plumbing that allows innovation to happen out in the consumer space. And that is the, uh, the, the emergence of data exchange layers. Everybody says we're going to have a single platform. We're never going to have a single platform. Grand Central Station could not function with one platform. We need lots of platforms. But an agreed set of rules so that data that can come and sit on these, these exchange layers uh, can sit there and, if trusted, move through to the other side and vice versa. And the, the, the realization by uh, systems architects around the world that we are moving to a much more distributed architecture uh, for the future um, as opposed to uh, large, monolithic, single providers of electronic health records and so on and so forth, um, for me, is going to become incredibly liberating. Well, I think that's a great place to close it out on a hopeful note. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Crooks. It was a real pleasure. You're more than welcome.